Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We are continuing with our summer series going through the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. We are in chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair around you. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that one home. That's our gift to you. We want everyone to have a copy of the Word of God. So chapter 10 introduces the last major section of this letter. It's, it's really different, too, than the rest of the letter, so much so that some scholars have even suggested that this might be a different letter entirely that got clipped onto this one. So there's no evidence for that, of course. But it is striking just how different Paul's tone and the content is in this last section of the letter. So in chapters 10 through 13, the last four chapters, Paul begins to defend his authority as an apostle against the claims of these so-called super apostles who are coming in to the church in Corinth, and they're trying to discredit Paul in the eyes of this congregation. So I think this section is actually addressed both to these super apostles, you know, and you have to say that with with air quotes, these super apostles, and the people in the church who are being led astray by them. What Paul's doing in this section is he's defending himself and defending his authority as an apostle. So what were these guys saying about Paul? They said that they had superior apostolic authority. They had better credentials than he did. They claimed to be sophisticated public speakers, unlike Paul, who they said was unskilled in speech. They claimed that Paul was bold in his letters, but a coward in person. Their teaching promoted sin and immorality in the congregation. And they were in it for the money, as are most false teachers. And they even mocked Paul for not charging for preaching. I love that one. Like, one of the things that they made fun of him for is that he wasn't charging them for the preaching. I love it. So in responding to all of this, in responding to these claims, and in trying to win back the support of the Corinthians, Paul defends his authority. And how does he do it? He does it by leveraging the influence that God has given him over this congregation. So in verse 13 of this chapter, Paul says that the Corinthians are an area of influence that God has assigned to him. What does it mean to be an influence on someone? Well, I'm sure that everyone in this room can think of people in your life who have had a huge influence on you, who have shaped the way that you think, the way that you dress, the way that you talk, the way that you act. I'm sure all of you are an influence on someone else, whether you know it or not. So speaking from my life, there are some godly men in this church who have had a massive impact on me. Guys like Brian Briggs, who just led worship, Pastor Joey, Pastor David, these are guys who have poured into my life and have discipled me. And I can tell you, I would not be standing here right now if it weren't for these godly men and their influence in my life. But on the flip side, in my teenage years, there were a lot of really bad influences in my life that really were instrumental in leading me down the path of sin. So the question is not whether or not you are influencing someone else or being influenced by someone else. The question is how you are going to use the influence that God has assigned to you. I love that Paul uses the word assigned in verse 13. That tells me that the influence that God gives to us, the influence that God lets us have is not an accident. It's not an accident that you're here this morning, that you're a part of Coastal Community Church. It's not an accident that you work where you work. It's not an accident that you were born into the family that you were born into, despite how it might feel at Thanksgiving sometimes. You know, God has us where he has us for a reason. And he wants us to use that influence for his glory. But some of you guys might be skeptical because in the church world, sometimes we tend to think if I don't have this big position where I'm in front of everyone, then how much influence do I really have? 
Well, I wanted to encourage you guys with this this morning. As a believer in Jesus Christ, regardless of whether you're a pastor or a nursery worker, regardless of whether you are a Christian rock star and you've got songs on K-Love, or if you're working a nine-to-five job, regardless of whether you are a missionary to an unreached people group or a busy stay-at-home mom, God has given you a unique sphere of influence, and he wants you to use it to advance the kingdom of God. He wants you to use it for the gospel and for his glory. So this morning, I wanted to talk about how we do that. How do we use the spiritual influence that God has assigned to us? And I want to give you three things this morning. We confront error with the truth. We live in authenticity, and we live with godly ambition. So with this in mind, let's start in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The word of God says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth in our lives. Lord, so now I ask that as we open up your word and we study it, Lord, would you open up our hearts? Would you open up our minds? Would you teach us what you would have us to learn this morning, that we might be more like Jesus? Would you teach us how to use the influence that you have stewarded to us in this short amount of time that we call life for your glory and for the spread of the gospel? For we ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the way that Paul teaches us to use this influence that he has stewarded to us is first this, we confront error with truth. So let's take a look in chapter 10. In verse 1, Paul starts by sarcastically repeating one of the things that the super apostles were saying about him. They were saying that he's bold in his letters, he's big and scary with his words, but he's a coward in person. In the 21st century, we call that a keyboard warrior. Does anybody know what a keyboard warrior is? It's someone who's really bold on Facebook, really bold in that email, really bold in text messaging, but when you see them face-to-face, they're a coward. We all know someone like that, and that's not a particularly good character quality to have. But Paul says, I wasn't doing this because I was a coward. The reason I'm kind and gentle to you in person is because I am imitating the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. In fact, he goes on to say he hopes he won't have to be bold with them like he plans on being with these false teachers who are leading them astray. What Paul is saying here is kind of like what your mom said to you on a road trip when you're in the back of the car and you're acting up. She's like, don't make me come back there. (laughs) Paul's saying, you think I'm not bold in person. You better hope I don't have to be. He was no coward when it came to standing up for the truth of God's word. So he goes on to describe how he's going to deal with these false teachers. And it's not according to fleshly, worldly methods but he's going to use the weapons of warfare that God has given to us as believers. He says that he has been given divine power to destroy strongholds. So what is Paul talking about here? What is a stronghold? 
A lot of people have read a lot of weirdness into this verse, but we don't need to do that because the next line defines strongholds for us. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So Paul, he's using the imagery of a military siege against a fortress to illustrate how he's going to deal with the false teaching of these false teachers. You know, there's a, in the ancient world, you've got this fortress, this giant building that you can go and hide in. And Paul's saying, first, what I'm going to do is destroy the strongholds. Well, what are the strongholds? It is false teaching that keeps people from believing the gospel. Strongholds are false teachings that keep people from believing the gospel. In our culture, it could be any number of things. It could be atheism. It could be relativism, the belief that there really is no right and wrong and everyone can just do what what feels good to me, right? It could be evolution, the belief that we're all just a random accident and nothing really matters because we're all just a random accident. These are all strongholds in our culture that many people use as the defense mechanisms to prevent them from believing the gospel. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to confront false teaching with the truth of the word of God in our sphere of influence. We need to do that because false teaching is destructive. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 2.1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So not every Christian is called to be some professional debater who defends the faith for a living, but all of us are called to know the truth of God's word so that we can defend the faith against those who would come against it. And this matters because false teaching, it's not just a matter of opinion. It's not just a matter of preference. But according to Peter, it brings swift destruction. We need to be prepared to recognize and to confront arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God when we see it in our lives or when we see it in the lives of those we love and in our sphere of influence. But in our culture, the only heresy is calling something else heresy, right? It's this idea that, What's true for me might not be true for you, and we can all just, you know, believe whatever we want to believe. We've all been taught that there are two things that polite people don't talk about in public. What are they? Politics and religion, yes. And any disagreement about religion, any disagreement about spiritual matters, it's really just preference. If believing that works for you and that makes you happy, awesome. But if believing this works for me and that makes me happy, awesome. It really doesn't matter in the end. So when we tell someone that what they believe is actually wrong, like objectively wrong, and if they don't repent and turn to Christ, they will spend an eternity separated from God, we get told that that's not loving. But listen, there's nothing loving about keeping the gospel a secret while people are on their way to hell. So if my house is on fire and I'm asleep in it, I would not want you to say, hmm, well... A respectable person doesn't wake someone up in the middle of the night. And you know, uh, Nate's pretty grumpy before he's had his coffee in the morning. So the most loving thing for me to do would be to just let him sleep. You know, if that makes him happy, that'll work out for him in the end. No, of course not. On a much greater scale, how horrible and unloving would it be for us to keep this gospel a secret in a world that's on the highway to hell? No pun intended. As Christians, we need to be prepared to defend our faith and to lovingly correct those in our sphere of influence that are not believing the gospel. And this isn't just an optional hobby for Bible nerds. 
This is a command for all believers. Listen to Peter again in his first letter. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So my encouragement for us this morning is to be prepared. Be prepared to confront error with truth in your sphere of influence, whatever that looks like, because God's given us divine power to do this. So many people think, well, you know, I haven't been to seminary, so I'm not prepared to talk to this person who doesn't believe the gospel. You don't need to go to seminary. You need the word of God and you need prayer. You need the spirit of God living in you. These are the weapons of our warfare and they're powerful. It's divine power to destroy strongholds. Listen, equip yourself with the weapons of our warfare, with the word of God and with prayer, and then go. Be bold, speak up. Some of you guys, listen, God has put you in the workplace that you are in around unbelievers all the time. Speaking personally, I used to work in a hospital and I worked with unbelievers all the time. And at the time I didn't speak up as often as I should have. And now I work in a church and I miss it all the time. I miss being around people that I can reach with the gospel because I'm around Christians all day. I'm back there trying to preach the gospel to Pastor David half the time, you know? And he's like, I got that, Nate. Listen, (laughs) use the sphere of influence that God has given you. Take advantage of that. So the next thing we see in our passage about confronting error with truth is this. We need to take every thought captive. So Paul keeps going with this, this metaphor that he's using of siege warfare. So first, he's going to destroy the strongholds, destroy the fortresses, which are these arguments raised against the gospel. And then he's going to take every thought captive. So think about a battle scene. You destroy the enemy fortifications first, the defensive things. Then you go and you take the enemy captive. That's what Paul is talking about doing here to these false teachers. I think this verse, take every thought captive, usually uh, the way I've heard it preached, the way I've heard people talk about it is in your thought life. As an individual believer, when you have thoughts that aren't honoring to the Lord, you need to capture them so that you can be more obedient to Christ. I think that's, that's true, but I don't think that's the point of this text. I think what Paul is talking about is actually taking the thoughts of others captive, right? The thoughts of these false teachers and those who are led astray by them captive. So as Christians, this is just the next step. Once we destroy the argument that's raised against the knowledge of God, we try to reach the person. It's not just about winning a fight. It's about winning a person. It's about leading a person to understand the gospel. But that doesn't mean necessarily that you and I are off the hook. So bear with me here. I think that we, as Christians, need to let Paul, the apostle, take our thoughts captive. That sounds weird because about 2,000 years ago, 66 AD or so, the emperor Nero chopped off Paul's head. So he can't walk in here and preach us a sermon or anything. So how does Paul take our thoughts captive today? through the words that he and the other biblical authors wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I don't renew my own mind. God's word renews my mind. I need to let the word of God take every thought of mine captive as I'm reading it, as I'm studying it, as I'm hearing it preached so that I can be more fully obedient to Jesus. I tell people all the time, we don't just need to read God's word. We need to let God's word read us. You know, in James chapter one, um, James uses this metaphor of a mirror when he's talking about the scriptures. He says that the Bible, it's like a mirror. And how foolish would it be to look in a mirror, see a massive blemish and be like, oh man, that stinks. And then just walk away and go on with your day. That'd be foolish, right? Well, so I have a good story with this one. I have these 
uh, ridiculous sunglasses. So first of all, they're child size, and I have an oversized head. Um, and second of all, they're, they're American flag colors, and they're all like patriotic all around. My wife absolutely hates them. Whenever I wear them, she's so embarrassed. She won't let me wear them in public. Well, I was driving one day. This was last summer, and I'm, it's, I'm in the car. It's a really bright, sunny day. It's hot, and I didn't have any other sunglasses, and those just happened to be in the car. So I put them on, and I looked in the mirror, and I just realized, oh, these look so silly, but whatever. Uh, so I go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, like most days, um, and I forget that they're on. And I, I pull up to the window, and when I do, the girl in the window just kind of is like, okay, it's going to be 7 <laughs> And she started laughing at me. And I, I forgot that I'm wearing the glasses. And so I'm like, well, that's kind of rude. You're supposed to say my pleasure, you know? Like, this, what are you doing? Then I drive off with my food and look in the mirror and go, oh. I looked in the mirror. I saw how silly I looked. And then I just kept going with my day. Well, listen, I think that's how a lot of us read the Bible. I think we go to the Bible. We let it read us. We see how we don't measure up. We see ways that we need to grow, ways that we need to conform to Christ. And then we just go on with our day. But we need to let God's word renew our minds. Listen to Romans 12. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let me read that again. Be transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewal of your mind. That's the way that God makes us more like Jesus, by changing the way that we think. If you can change the way you think, you can change your behavior. That comes first. God renews our minds. And how does God renew our minds? Through the word of God, through making a time in God's word a priority in your life. At Coastal, man, we believe that the main way that God transforms us and makes us like Jesus is by his word. So we need to read the word, study the word, pray the word, sing the word, meditate on the word, memorize the word, and read good books that help us understand the word. And when we have a deep understanding of God's word that is really sunk into our minds, it will come down into our hearts and subsequently transform our behavior. But it starts with knowing the word. And when we do that, we will be equipped to destroy strongholds and take every thought captive of those in our sphere of influence. So I wanted to give you just a few practical ways that you can do this with people in your sphere of influence, in your family, in your workplace, with your friends here at church. So first, think about the people that you know that don't have a relationship with Christ and ask why haven't they accepted the gospel? Are they putting up one of these strongholds that we talked about earlier? Maybe it's a secular worldview. Maybe it's a different religion is one of these strongholds. Equip yourself with the word of God and with prayer and then go. Don't be afraid. Speak up. Equip yourself and go. God has put people in your life that you are in a better position to reach with the gospel than anybody else. And God wants you to use that. Second, you might not be aware of any thoughts or attitudes or actions in your life that aren't honoring to the Lord and aren't obedient to Christ, but that doesn't mean that there aren't any. We're often really unaware of things that are going on in our hearts because we aren't in God's word enough. The spirit of God uses the word of God. So we need to be in the word daily so that God can take our thoughts captive to be more obedient to Christ. And finally, although I think this text is mainly talking about confronting false teaching, I think the same principle would apply more generally to teaching the truth. I think there are some people in this room who God is calling to teach. Some of you guys need to step up and lead a small group. Some of you guys need to think about teaching a spiritual formation class the next time that comes around. Some of you guys need to find a younger believer here in the church that you can meet with one-on-one -on -one and disciple and pour into their life. 
Sometimes we need to ask God for opportunities to expand our sphere of influence in the world. That's something to be praying about and to be thinking about. If you have a passion for the word of God, don't let that go to waste. Use that. Well, as essential as confronting error with truth is, that's not all it means to steward spiritual influence. We also must live in authenticity. If our lives are not marked by authenticity, no one's going to listen when we speak the truth. That's part of our mission here at Coastal. Does anybody know our mission statement? Nobody? Nobody went to We Are Coastal. That's fine. So our mission statement is to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And I think Paul models four elements of what it means to be authentic in chapter 10 this morning. So first, being authentic means living with humility. Humility is essential to authenticity. In verse 1 of this passage, Paul describes himself as meek and as humble. Well, what is humility? I think a lot of us tend to think of humility as not liking yourself. A humble person is somebody who can never take a compliment. I used to, I have to admit, I used to be really bad about this. I used to think, I wanted to be humble as a new believer, so I thought that meant I just have to shoot anyone down whenever they say anything nice because for me to accept a compliment would be arrogance or whatever. So a couple of years ago, the Christian band 10th Avenue North, any of you ever heard of them? A couple of you guys. They came to Coastal, actually, and played a concert on a Sunday morning because Pastor Andrew actually used to be the youth pastor for a couple of the guys in that church. It's pretty awesome. So Pastor Joey was going to introduce me to them, and the lead singer and another guy were standing there, and so I'd never, of course, never met them before, and I'm a nervous wreck because I'm getting ready to meet a famous person. So Pastor Joey walks me over to him, and he said, hey, this is my friend Nate. He's a great guitar player, and I just blurt out, no, I'm not. I stink. <laughs> And the guy, so the funny thing is that guy had never seen me play guitar before. Usually when someone says something like that, they're fishing for a compliment. But this guy had never seen me play before. So it's not like he's going to go, oh, no, 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 Nate. Like, you're, you're awesome. No, he just kind of went, okay. And it was awkward. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> it was really weird after that. But I learned that humility isn't just saying you're bad at something that God has gifted you in. Humility can recognize the gifts that God has given us to use for his glory. I love C.S. Lewis once wrote that humility isn't about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. I think that's really good. A humble person is someone that's aware of their strengths and their weaknesses, but isn't consumed by either. I think that the root of pride is the need for other people to validate me. A lot of you guys have probably noticed that the most arrogant people also tend to be the most insecure. It's this idea that I need the approval of other people to have any sense of self-worth and self-value. But humble people can live without really caring what people think either way with a clear conscience because they are secure in their relationship with the Lord. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what Paul says. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Translation, I don't care what you guys think. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Translation, I don't care what I think. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. That's powerful. He's saying, listen, I don't care what you guys think. I don't care what any human court thinks. Here's the crazy one. I don't even care what I think about myself. It's God who judges me. It is God who gives me my value. It's God's approval is the only one that matters. 
That is the essence of humility. A humble person is someone that is so secure in their relationship with the Lord and his approval of them in Christ that they are not controlled by the opinions of other people. And that means I don't have to talk myself up at every opportunity. I don't have to Instagram everything. I can just be content with who God is and how he has made me in his approval of me in Christ. That is essential to what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus. Next, living with authenticity means having concern for others. So let's keep going in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Paul makes it clear that his authority was given to him for the purpose of encouraging them, for the purpose of building this church up. And when I was studying this, this one line just jumped off the page at me. I love that Paul said, so he's in the middle of a rebuke. He's rebuking this church for following the false teachers. But he says, I don't want to appear to be frightening to you. Paul is scolding this church, and yet he loves them so much that he's concerned about how they're going to take it. He cares about their emotional well-being in the middle of a rebuke. And that's just such an awesome model for us, how we need to be concerned for others more than we are for ourselves. That's central to what it means to be authentic. But as great as a model as Paul is for us here, we all know that there's an even better model of this one, right? Our Lord Jesus though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though Jesus is the eternal son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the second person of the Trinity, he laid all of that aside to come and live among us and die for us and rise from the dead for us. Do you guys realize that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, has always existed in a perfect relationship of love and joy with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit? That means he didn't need us. He wasn't sitting up in heaven all lonely. He was perfectly happy and complete in himself before he came to earth to save us. So why did he do it? Out of an overflow of the love and mercy in his heart. God doesn't need us, he wants us. And that's so much better. Jesus showed the ultimate concern for others by coming to rescue us. And when we have been transformed by that gospel, it enables us to love others and to show concern for others as authentic followers of Christ. The third thing that being authentic means is walking in integrity. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 10, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Paul's telling them that what they get in letter is what they get in person. He's no keyboard warrior. Being a person of integrity means that you are the same person all the time. You're the same person when you're face-to-face -face with someone and the same person when you walk away. You're the same person on social media as you are in person. 
That's what it means to be a person of integrity. It means that you're honest. It means that you don't tolerate hypocrisy or gossip or slander. It means that you live out what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 37. He said, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And this is important because you're not going to have a positive influence on anyone for the gospel if you're not reliable, if they can't trust you. And I wanted to ask us just a couple uncomfortable diagnostic questions this morning on the issue of integrity. These are rhetorical questions, so you don't have to scream out answers. Better yet, spouses, you don't have to scream out for your spouse. Um, When you say you're going to do something or you say you're going to be somewhere, do people believe you? Do you have a reputation for being flaky? Are you habitually late wherever you go? Would you speak to someone in person the same way you would speak on social media? That one's going to be real important next year. I'll let you figure out why. Some of these things might seem really small and really insignificant. And you know, you shouldn't be late to meetings is probably not on the list of the best sermon application points you've ever heard. But here's why that's important. If someone can't trust you to be a reliable person with small things, why would they listen to what you have to say about eternal realities? When you're faithful with little, you will be faithful with much. That's why it matters. Integrity takes years to build and just seconds to destroy. And as believers in Christ, we need to be people whose lives are marked by integrity. So finally, being authentic means living without comparison. It means that I'm not always comparing myself to other people. Paul said in verse 12, not that we dare to classify or to compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Authentic followers of Jesus don't need to compare themselves to other people. Sinful comparison can go in one of two directions. So I either compare myself with people that I feel superior to, that I feel better than, in order to puff myself up and build up my ego, or I compare myself with people that I feel inferior to in order to beat myself up. And not to keep harping on social media, but that is a breeding ground for this kind of attitude. Some of us will go on Facebook in the morning, and we're feeling fine. We're just starting our day, and we get off a little while later wondering why our life isn't as awesome as that person we haven't seen since high school. Never mind the fact that they spent the last 30 minutes editing that picture before they posted it and thinking of just the perfect quote, the perfect Bible verse, whatever, right? It's so fake, yet we let it have so much control over our emotions and over our thoughts. You know, study after study has shown a direct correlation between excessive social media use and depression. And I wonder why. We go on there and we see everyone else's life and we compare our life to it and then we wonder, we start asking God, are you holding out on me? Why aren't I as happy as them? Why don't I have that new boat? Why, don't, why aren't my kids that well-behaved, even though it took them 30 minutes to get them lined up for that picture? You know? Sinful comparison is not what it means to be authentic because an authentic believer in Jesus believes that God has me where I am in my life for a reason, so I don't need to compare myself to other people, either for good or for bad. Comparison is a failure to rest in the sovereign goodness of God who puts all of us where we are for a reason. So I don't need to envy others 
And I also don't need to demean others because I can trust that my heavenly father knows what's best for me and has me where I need to be. Well, our final point this morning is this. We must have or we must live with godly ambition. When it comes to stewarding the influence that God has given us, confronting error with truth is what we do. Living with authenticity is how we do it. And having godly ambition is why we do it. This next point is about our motivation, about our ultimate goal in what we do. And this is how Paul concludes this chapter, starting in verse 13. He says, But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul gives us two insights into his ambition, into why he did what he did in this text, and it's really powerful. And the first one is this. Paul had ambition for the gospel. He said, our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that, those words are so important, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Why did Paul want a larger area of influence? He didn't want it for the popularity. He didn't care about having a best-selling book or being on a talk show. His ambition wasn't about being successful by the world's standards. It was for the gospel. It was the name and fame of Jesus Christ that motivated everything that he did. It was his all-consuming passion. In fact, in the last letter that he wrote before his death in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote this. He said, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If you've read about the life of Paul at all, and in fact, we're gonna see more of this next week in chapter 11, you'll see that he went through a lot of horrible, terrible things, but he was willing to endure anything that this world could throw at him. Why? Because Jesus is worthy. Because Jesus is worthy. And making Jesus famous was the all-consuming passion of his life. It drove everything that he did. And Coastal Gloucester, it is my hope and prayer that the glory and fame of Jesus Christ would be the ultimate goal and motivation behind everything that we do as a church. In every worship service, in every small group, in every mission trip, in every ministry team, the gospel would be at the center. And what is the gospel? 
The gospel is the good news that a holy and righteous God loved us fallen and broken sinners so much that he sent his only son into this world to die on the cross for our sins and rise victoriously from the dead. And when we turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ, God takes our sin and casts it as far as the east is from the west. And he covers us. He clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus so that we stand before God. God doesn't see us anymore in our sin. He sees us in Christ. Man, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the mess of your sin that you're still wrestling with. When God looks at you, he says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. You know, it says in Zephaniah, one of those minor prophets that nobody ever reads, but you should. It says in Zephaniah chapter three, that when the Lord looks on his people, he rejoices over them with singing, with singing. Have you ever seen a mom with a newborn baby and she's so in love with this little baby that she just walks around singing? That's God when he looks at you. Infinite love, infinite delight, all in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And listen, that message is why we go to Bolivia. That message is why we go to Puerto Rico. It's why we go to Thailand. It's why we planted this campus here in Gloucester. It's why we just planted a campus in Deer Park because everybody needs to hear that message about a God that good that he would send his only son to save us. Listen, we aren't doing what we do as a church for a paycheck. We're not doing it to build our own little kingdom. We do what we do because we are committed from the core of our being to making Jesus famous in this community and all over the world. We do this because Jesus is worthy and we want to be a part of seeing people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation worshiping him around the throne. We want to use the sphere of influence that God has given us to make Jesus famous. How much time do I have? We don't have a clock back there. Ooh, thanks. <laughs> Y'all aren't beating Lighthouse to Scoots today. Uh, anyways, so my last point, my last point. I don't have a clock back there. I really didn't know how much time I had. Um, my last point. We must have ambition for the glory of God. So Paul closes this chapter with a paraphrase from Jeremiah chapter nine in the Old Testament. And the passage says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul's ambition was not for his own glory, but for the glory of God. We just finished saying that Paul's ultimate ambition was for the gospel. Why was that? You see, John Piper once wrote in a really great book on missions and evangelism. On the first paragraph of this book, he said this, and it stuck with me ever since. He said, Missions exist because worship doesn't. Why is our ambition for the gospel front and center at Coastal? For the glory of God. Because listen, there's gonna come a day when there's no more evangelism. There's gonna come a day when there's no more missions. But there's never going to come a day when there's no more worship. Why do we spread the gospel? Why are we passionate about the gospel here? Because the lamb who was slain is worthy 
to be worshipped forever and ever and ever for people, from people in every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Coastal, it's my hope and my prayer that we would use the influence that we have, both as individuals and as a church, not for a pat on the back, not for public recognition, not for a good reputation, or for money, or better life, or better behaved kids, or anything else, but we would use the influence that God has given us to spread the gospel to the glory of God. I want to close this morning by reminding us of a sobering truth, and that's that we only have one life to live for God's glory. What kind of a legacy are you going to leave behind? Will there be people who will be able to say that they love Jesus more because you lived? That's what all of us should desire, that's to lead others to love Jesus more. So I wanted to give us just a few practical ways that we can use our influence for God's glory in closing this morning. Some of you need to step up this morning and answer the call to serve however God has gifted you, whatever that looks like in a small group, in a ministry, whatever it is. Step out, enter into a sphere of influence and watch God use you. Watch God grow that. Some of you need to take the roles and responsibilities that you have in your family more seriously, in your workplace, in your church, so on and so forth, and consider how God is calling you to use the influence that you already have where you are. Some of you can already think of someone, as I've been talking, that you need to have a talk with about Christ. You need to think about the stronghold that they have built for themselves and think about how you can lovingly engage them with the gospel of Christ so that you can see them worshiping Jesus forever. Some of you need to strive to live with greater authenticity so that when you do that, people will listen. And some of you need to rethink the motivation and the ambition that drives the way that you steward the influence that you have. Am I doing this for me or am I doing this for the glory of God? God has given all of us a sphere of influence and it's my prayer that Coastal Gloucester would use the influence that God has given us to make Jesus famous in Gloucester County. The worship team's gonna come up now and we're gonna close with prayer. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we worship you this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us so much that you have reconciled us to yourself through the blood of your son. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us how we can live for your glory, how we can use the influence that you have given us to make an impact in Gloucester County and to the ends of the earth. We love you, Lord, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name.